Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Welcome to a special edition of Romaniacs. I'm Dorian Linsky. I've got Naomi Smith and Ian Dunt here with me in London, and we have a very special guest for this emergency podcast. At the end of a dire week for the current Prime Minister, who's decided to blame Parliament for everything she's done over the past three years, we'll be talking to a previous resident of Number 10. Our special guest is former Prime Minister between 1997 and 2007, and now head of the Tony Blair Institute for Global Change. The clue's in the name, it's Tony Blair. <laughs> Hi, Tony. Welcome to Romaniacs. Thanks Thank for coming you. in. Thank you. So we appear to be in the middle of the biggest political crisis in Britain outside a, a, of an actual world war. Um, back in June 2016, did you think things could get this bad? Do you think chaos was sort of baked into the Brexit project or there was a, another way? Um, I think there was another way. We could have had a better way of dealing with this. But it was always going to be extremely difficult and messy because Brexit is, is inherently difficult. If you've been four and a half decades inside a European system is the biggest commercial market, largest political union in the world. Do you come out of it? You're going to have a problem. And the sight of, of Theresa May sort of in, the, in that uh, speech on Wednesday night going to sort of war with Parliament seems quite uh, unprecedented. I mean, are we, are we in a sort of grim state for, for British politics? Um, we, we are in a grim state for many, many reasons. Look, at, at one level, um, it's probably not the right podcast to, to do this on, but let me start with, <laughs> with a word of sympathy uh, for her in the sense that, you see, right from the very beginning, this, this was a very difficult thing to do, to hold a referendum in circumstances where you're the government and you want the status quo. I mean, normally you would hold a referendum if you're the government and you want to change things, right? So you say, let, let's say you were going to take Britain into the single currency and you think that's the right thing for the government to do and you put it before the people in referendum. Right. If you think you're the government, you want a mandate for change, people vote for change, obviously they voted for what you wanted. If people don't vote uh, for change, they voted for the status quo. Now, it's not what you want, but, OK, things just carry on as they were. It's a very difficult thing when a government puts a referendum choice to the people where the government's desire is the status quo, because then if the people vote to change the status quo, you're left as a government, and this is the problem for the political class and the political system, implementing something that inherently you don't believe in, because otherwise you, you, know, you would have been arguing for the change, but you were arguing for the status quo. So we, this was always going to be a mess, and she had a very difficult position because people mm. expected her then to deliver Brexit. But my view right at the very outset was that the sensible thing would have been to become the nation's educator and facilitator and explainer and just set out the different options because the options are actually very obvious. They were set out by the European Commission right at the very outset. And then as we went through it, I think we could have either come to a conclusion, there was a form of Brexit that really worked for us, or I think a more likely conclusion would have been that we wanted to think again. But um, it's having decided that she was going to deliver Brexit really whatever the outcome of that Brexit negotiation, she was going to deliver it 
this is why we're in the present mm. problem and this is now what's led her to believe that the only way she can get her deal through is to mobilise the public against Parliament, which is, a, you know, frankly a dangerous thing to do. And, and given that parlour situation that we're in now, if you were still MP for the good people of Sedgefield or, dare I say, even still Labour leader, what would your parliamentary strategy be right now? To, to vote like down... right the, now, right, with, right. with five, ten, seven days to go till we... Given, given it would have been not a wise idea to start from here. Indeed, but, yep. <laughs> okay, but, if, but, but we are yep. where we are, right. So I would vote down her deal and then um, vote for a motion that gave us a process that would have indicative votes so that you then decide what form of Brexit you want or if you can't decide what form of Brexit you want, you go back to the people. So that's... Or alternatively, by the way, a, a variation of that is you decide you want to form a Brexit, but you want it endorsed by the people. So that's what I would. So aim some for. kind of ratification yeah. by the people at the moment. I mean, it is complicated now because the Europeans are frustrated. Um, you know, they themselves are, are getting into a, a situation where it's important that they keep calm at this situation, at this moment, and and don't react just in frustration. Mm. Um, but I think, you know, frankly, knowing the people at the, in leadership positions in, in Europe, in the council. I think if, if Britain came to them this week or next week with a plan, they would grant the extension. I mean, we can debate how long for, but what they're looking for is anything that gives them a clear path to resolution of the Brexit problem and doesn't mean that the next months are going to be like the last months. Do you think there's any way that they would push into a no deal? I don't think so, but you know, we're, I've always said there's a 5 to 10% chance of an accident hmm. and you tip hmm. into no deal by accident. I, I still think it's not more than that, but you know, it's not negligible. Not um, too many lentils being stockpiled in the Blair House at the moment. No. <laughs> Good. No. Uh, no, and I still do, I look, I, I think there is a, a, a basic maturity that will prevent such a foolish outcome when, when there are other obvious outcomes that you could have. Um, so I, I don't think whatever uh, people are briefing, uh, you know, as to what the leaders think. You know, I've spent 10 years in these European councils. I have a very clear mm. view of how the dynamic works. Uh, the key thing will be the position of the, the core leadership, particularly uh, Angela Merkel and, and uh, Emmanuel Macron. And I think they'll take a mature and sensible position. Do you make anything of those reports about Macron being potentially open to a no deal or at least much more open to it than anyone else knew? I think he is basically saying, "Give us a plan. Show us how your show us how the future is going to be different from the past." Because you have to understand, for them, it's very frustrating because they believe they set out, as indeed they did, very clearly what the choices were in the negotiation. They literally spent two and a half years telling the British delegation the same thing at every meeting, which is your desire to stay with the benefits of the single market but without its obligations, you know, the cake and eat it strategy, can't work. You know, when you've said it over and over again and then they just keep coming back and saying, well, I tell you what, let's give you another version of the same thing. So they feel very frustrated. They then get blamed for being intransigent when actually it's obvious you're either in the single market or you're out of it, you can't be half of it, half in it. You know, then they're told that they've got a deal, which is really a fudge about the future relationship, which they're not wild about, but they can live with. Um, then they're told this will be passed by Parliament for sure. Then there's one defeat and then another defeat. And it looks like the thing's 
miles away from resolution and they're told different things by the government on different days of the week you know you can understand why they're <laughs> the, the credibility levels of the British government right now in Brussels are not high let's now, say. Now because of your independent position now you can take a very firm stance on Brexit while Jeremy Corbyn is sort of triangulating in a way sort of ironically that people used to accuse New Labour of doing. Is that just the price of leadership? Do you have any sympathy for the, the argument from the, the current leadership that they have to worry about retaining leave voters and so that they had to kind of fudge this and couldn't be as... Firm. Yeah, look, I, I understand the argument and some of the leave... Um, the people who are now Labour MPs voting leave are people I knew well in government. They're basically supporters of mine in government. I completely get it. You know, they're saying, look, we're out in our constituency. People are telling us, you just got to do it. We voted for it. I understand all of that. My point is, is actually that strategically, I still think it's a mistake to have done what we've done because it will lead us to the point where the Leavers don't really think we're for leave and the Remainers mm-hmm. think we're not really fighting the case the of Remain. Both so I, I think it is, it, is, um, you know, it is indecisive destruction, not constructive ambiguity, mm. uh, <laughs> that is, is the outcome of it. And that's why I think we're struggling in the opinion polls at the moment, is that neither... Neither of the people who feel ardently about this think that we're getting it right. So my, my disagreement is, is, is a, as much a tactical one as a strategic one. I think the better position for Labour, um, and you know, this is frankly what my successor Phil Wilson's been arguing, and you know, he tells me he argues it and people are perfectly accepting of it in his constituency, even though it's heavily pro-League, which is to say, look, I can't, I can't vote for this and I'm going to vote against it, but you take the final decision. You know, mm. So uh, I, I think if we had made that argument really coherently and if we'd been saying from a very early stage of this as a Labour Party, look, you've got to run the indicative votes. We could have built a majority for that. Frankly, you wouldn't have had the split in the Labour Party because your, your Labour MPs who are voting with Theresa May at the moment would have been perfectly happy to have voted for an indicative vote process. It's just that they would then, when the indicative yes. votes came before Parliament, they would have voted leave. Well, fair enough. But so we could have done what she should have done. Mm. And I think we were in a far stronger position electorally if we'd done that, never mind as a point of principle. So look, I don't... I understand why they're doing what they're doing, but I think the basic problem, frankly, is that look, Jeremy Corbyn and the people from his sort of ideological part of the left have always been anti-Europe, effectively. So I think that's their real problem. And when you step forward to talk about Brexit, however... Uh, strong the points are you, you must know like a lot of people say but Iraq and refuse to listen do you when you do intervene are you aware that that kind of that baggage inhibits what you can achieve puts a kind of roof on what you can achieve well I'd be pretty um, <laughs> I'd be pretty blinking myself I didn't realise <laughs> I mean fortunately I don't read a lot of social media so it, it doesn't uh, yeah. but you know of course yeah, you'll get people say ah, I'm going to listen to him and so on but it, it just depends you've got a choice I, I always say to people look it's my right to speak and it's your right not to listen um, and, but it's not your right to tell me I can't speak and it's not my right to force you to listen so if you don't want to listen to me because you disagree with Iraq or you didn't, didn't like New Labour or whatever then fine I mean that's your choice but I'm, I regret not having done more in the referendum mm. um, and I kept out of it in a way precisely for that reason and afterwards I've just thought, no, no, this is this is a terrible mistake and I'm not going to feel comfortable unless, even if we do it, I think, well, 
I did everything I could to stop it. Coming, coming back to the referendum, because you've touched on it, um, I came of age in Belfast around the time of the Good Friday Agreement, and we talked about ABC, there was Ahern, there was Blair, there was Clinton, this sort of great trio. Do you regret that more wasn't made of the threat to peace in Northern Ireland and the union, keeping the union of the United Kingdom together during the referendum? And, and on that sort of point about being you know, aware, uh, we know that messenger is everything. Who would have been the best messenger for pushing that a bit more than it was done? Well, as, as, you, as you imply, look, myself and John Major did go and did make the warnings, and but they were dismissed. Yeah. And I think, I think the problem is that this is another problem with the concept of having a referendum on this issue in this way, is that it, you know we were it's like having a general election without a, um, you know where, where the issue is simply, do you like the government? <laughs> right. If 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 the if you had a general election, and the issue was do you like the government? Very few governments would ever get, get elected. <laughs> right. Finally, it becomes do you like the government or the opposition? Do you prefer the opposition? And then people go, oh, yeah, well, maybe actually no, I prefer the government. And so the problem is, you never had a definitive proposition to argue against. So we could say, look, it's going to be economically difficult. This is what the single market means. This is the situation in Northern Ireland. But I remember when John Major and I did it, and we went there and we made the speech. We made all the points, by the way. Mm-hmm. Um, and the Secretary of State at the time just said, look, these are voices in the past, you know, mm. it just, just doesn't matter. It's uh, perfectly resolvable. It's going to be easy to resolve. I mean, all the stuff that, mm. you know, frankly, has turned out to be rubbish. But at the time, who could prove it was rubbish? Does it feel weird being sort of allies with him now? I mean, half the time that you're together, you're basically suddenly making the same point, the same mission. Um, a little bit. But, you know, I get used to it pretty quickly because it's, uh, you know, he's made some very powerful interventions on it, John Major. And, you know, by the way, I was always, funny enough, when he was leader of the Conservative Party, and of course, Europe was at that stage ripping the Tory party mm. apart. Because in the end, this is all about this psychosis within the Tory party yep. of Europe. I mean, this is, the country is basically held hostage to that. They should repay the billions we spent on Brexit. They should come out of Tory party pockets. Really. Well, it's it's a it's just an incredible thing that's that's happened. But he was struggling with it then, um, and you know, even though I was obviously fighting to remove him from office, I always had a kind of respect for the fact that he did try and stand his ground with the Eurosceptics then. And and for him, you know, this is also... I mean, you can just see history replaying itself. Mm, well, mm. you can see the consequences of, of a Tory Prime Minister who didn't stand his ground and said, oh, I have no choice for internal political reasons but to agree to this referendum that the Eurosceptics won. Yeah, the mystery to me is why anyone ever thought it would be reconcile the two wings of the Tory party, because it never was going to. Um, I mean, why would it? You know, you just have them on different sides. And um, I think this is, it's very similar to all those, if, when you go and you read the history of um, imperial tariff preference, you know, those debates and the joy. We do that for fun. <laughs> <laughs> That's my happy place. Right. You, okay. So when you, you go and read those, end of 19th century, uh, first, actually almost first couple of decades, it was really only in the war and after the war that the, the, the thing disappeared. I mean, the interesting thing, by the way, is when it did disappear, it just disappeared. But for literally three or four decades, British politics was upended, political careers were changed and made and, and failed as a result of all this debate over the empire tariff. And that was the argument at the time. And it had very similar mm. things. Actually, if you go back further in the Corn Laws and so on, very similar things around what is a national identity? What does it mean? What's Britain's place in the world? 
And these are the same arguments, really underneath all of this is the same argument around identity, uh, you know, how do we in a changing world get the right place for our country, you know, how do we let tradition um, coexist with modernity? These are the arguments that are underpinning all of this, and they're very familiar arguments. And part of the real tragedy of this for Britain is that at the very moment when the world is really changing fast and you need, you know, creativity, dynamism, you know, you need to be able to place the country in a different framework for the future, you know, we're just retreating into the past. When you look at the intense disagreements within the Tory party and within the Labour Party, and obviously people leaving the Labour Party to form their own group, has it changed your mind about the virtues of proportional representation? Do you think that that might actually, that if that just suddenly happened, that would enable British politics to reach a more kind of natural position than trying to hold these two monoliths together? Um, maybe, maybe today. I mean, I was always against proportional representation because, one, I felt when I studied the countries that had it, small parties ended up wielding disproportionate power as you started to try and form coalitions. So that was one problem. And the other problem was I used to get impatient with people who would think, you know, proportional representation is equivalent to taking tough political decisions. It doesn't, it's, it's, it's a means of deciding your government, but it doesn't alter the fact, you know, tuition fees or not tuition fees. You know, you can have a first-past-the-post or um, proportional representation or AV or whatever it is. You're still going to have to decide where you stand on difficult questions. I mean, I think there is an issue today because I think the sociology of politics is shifting. You know, there are new alliances coming about. And, you know, there's a group of people who I would say are um, socially liberal, but, you know, pro-enterprise entrepreneurship and so on, but still with a strong state enabling and empowering people through a process of change. That type of um, sentiment is not really represented at the moment in British politics today um, because the Labour Party's gone to a pretty hard left position. The Tory party's, at the moment at least, in danger of being defined by this narrow nationalism. Um, so maybe maybe you're just talking about three distinct groupings today rather than two as mm. in, in the past and possibly you can see the last 30 or 40 years, including the SDP, its rise and its fall and so on, as part of you know, what have been much bigger moves going on in British politics over a period of time. So I'd be more open to it today than I was. I'm just still always, you know, I always, and I used to have this conversation with, uh, you know, Paddy Ashdown when we first came into government, we're still thinking about how we might work together, is that I always felt that part of politics wanted a constitutional answer to a, a hard policy yeah. dilemma. Going back to the Iraq thing. There's two sort of ideas that have kind of fossilised, really. One of them is the idea that, regardless of the content or anything else, that there was a fundamental sort of break in public trust in what government had to say during Iraq, and that that then made it very difficult for the warnings about the economic effect of Brexit during the referendum to take hold. On that point, do you have any sympathy for that argument, irrespective of the content of what's being discussed? I mean, I'm not wildly sympathetic to it for a very simple reason, <laughs> because um, a lot of the people who voted for Brexit are people who are actually pro-Iraq. Hmm. I mean, if you look at the leading conservative Brexiteers, I think most of them would have lined up in favour, not against. So I don't... I mean, trust in politics... I mean more in terms of that, that instinctive hmm. 
you know, when you're in the pub, the 45 minute thing. Yeah, no, I understand. I understand. I, I understand, and I, I'm not, I don't discount that. But I think, I mean, first of all, I think the financial crisis was also a huge moment. I mean, I think post 9/11, the policy decisions. You know, just the difficulty of it, the fact that everything is very messy, post-financial crisis, the same thing. No, I think all of that feeds into a sense of... Expenses scandal, yeah, return yeah, on tuition uh, fees by the Lib Dems that's right. coalition. You know, all of that mm. um, plays into it. But I think, well, I think two things. First of all, just at a very basic level, I think if you'd held this referendum at any point in the last 30 to 40 years, you could have lost it. Mm. Um, you know, in other words, mm. it was always going to be a risk mm. to hold it. But secondly, I think in today's world, I think less it, it's it's less about trust than it is about a feeling by people that the world is changing fast beyond their control, and it's a it's a desire to reassert mm. a sense of control of which a sense of identity is very bound up. So I don't think it's, I don't, I think the trust issue is always there. And by the way, you know, you know, I grew up in politics in the 19, late 70s, early 80s. I, I promise you people didn't hugely trust politicians back then. <laughs> I mean, I don't know what, at what stage, you know, politicians have ranked really high on the trust score. Uh, they never have them for all sorts of strange reasons, which are often unfair to the politicians in my view, by the way. But, you know, I think it's more to do with what you can see right around the Western world today. You can see this in America, you can see it all over Europe, which is a feeling by people, and the immigration issue becomes a big mm -hmm. question in all of that. My world is changing. No one's asked my consent for this change, and I mm -hmm. feel it's not suiting me. On immigration, then, I was looking back at old Ipsos Mori polls just before you came to power in 97, and fewer than 5% of people across any demographic group were concerned about immigration. It just wasn't a big issue to them. And people on the left and right, I think, have criticised you for supporting the 2004 entry of um, Eastern European workers into the UK, um, helping to foster anti-immigration sentiment. I don't agree with that. I think it had far more to do with successive governments failing to invest in infrastructure, particularly housing, uh, education, reskilling, and things like that. What's what's your view? Yeah. So one of the things you learn that's really strange policy is once you leave power. It's something I say to people after they've left office: be really careful that your your opponents don't all define your record. So you know the risk for me is. For the left, they wanted to define it. He did Iraq and nothing else. And, you know, all the things the Labour government did around investment and ways of partnership, all the rest of it just gets thrown out the window. And on the right, it's, you know, they were just open borders policy. No, let's just rewind the clock a bit. 2005, I fought the 2005 election on immigration. That was the starting point of it, with Michael Howard at the time running on immigration and us blocking the path of that by saying, in fact, the right way to deal with immigration is to encourage it, but have a proper system of order. planned population growth. And that, yeah. Yeah, yeah, and that was why we had the identity card idea, and that was a huge controversy, if you remember, at the time. Mm -hmm. My first rebellions were all around asylum and immigration legislation, where, by the way, the Tories were voting against the tightening up of the laws. Immigration has always come up as an issue from time to time, and probably in '97. It wasn't a big issue because people were focused on one thing, getting rid of the Tory government, getting investment into the public services. Right. But as the Labour Party continues in power, becomes a bigger issue. Now, the 2004 thing was very specific because that's 
what people say. My only thing about that is, look, that was in a different set of circumstances at the time. If after 2008, nine, I'd still been in power in the financial crash and so on, I, I think I would have picked up that this was a big issue and probably needed dealing with, and I would have been adjusting and, you know, as I used to do, frankly. Um, but it's very important to realise what it was and what it wasn't. In 2004, we could have applied transitional arrangements to people working in the UK, but not to coming to the UK. And the worry was that people would come anyway and just work, which is, by the way, what really happened in Germany. And it is what most immigrants do. You know, the fact is, the other thing is, I, I think you're bound to try and deal with some of the freedom of movement anxieties now. I think it's sensible to do that because you've got to respond to people's concerns. But the truth is, freedom of movement on the whole has been a good, not a bad thing. And, you know, what, what has happened over the past three years now is absurd. We've now reduced the number of people from Europe. And by the way, I think that's causing us real problems in certain parts of our economy. House building? And then the people, immigrants Not from outside really. of Europe have now gone up. So mm. it, I understand this idea of dealing with the anxieties, but the reality is you do have to have the system if you're in the EU. So isn't it more of an argument of trying, of it's about time that a government was prepared to actually make a positive case for it, given the fact that it is a condition of staying in? You mean joining Schengen? No, 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 not at all. Freedom of movement. Yeah, no, I think you can make the case for it. But I think the, the, the thing that's difficult is, and this is why, by the way, freedom of movement today, not back in June 2016, but today is an issue across Europe. And so if you talk to President Macron and his people, they'll also tell you it's a problem. It's when you get, for example, much lower wages in that part of Eastern Europe that's joined the EU recently, and you bring in low-cost labour from Eastern Europe in order to undercut wages here. I think you can point to evidence of that. I think you can say that there are certain communities that have a big influx of people and it's caused real stress and strain, which is why David Cameron wasn't wrong to argue for the emergency break. Look, I, I think these are qualifications on the freedom of movement principle, and I think if you're in the practical business of politics, you should respond to those anxieties. Do I think freedom of movement on the whole is a good thing, not a bad thing? Yes, of course, I think it's a good thing. So when you say sort of change, you mean at the EU level on things like posted workers? I think, and yeah, exactly. Like that, I because, exactly. I mean, the last three years have obviously been pretty, you know, dire for sort of uh, the state of liberal democracy and people, not just in Britain and America, people worrying about, you know, Hungary and so on. I mean, across Brazil. Do you feel like, as I sometimes feel, looking back at how I thought about politics, in the, really in that period between sort of the fall of communism and the financial crisis, um, were we too complacent about the expansion, the growth of liberal democracy and, it, and its sort of strength now that there's endless books in the shops about how democracy dies and the death of democracy? <laughs> uh, it's, pretty, it's sort of pretty bleak out there. Do you, do you think that there were kind of fault lines that you, or anyone here, didn't spot? Yeah, I think so, probably. But on the other hand, you know, politics is a constant business of re-evaluation and adjustment and so on. I think, um, I mean, my institute studies populism. We've just done a series of reports which shows you how big this populist movement is. I mean, basically in Europe, yeah. these populist parties are getting three to four times the votes that they were 20 years ago. Um, and in America too. But I think my my view is that you only defeat this populism of the right, certainly, if you've got a strong centre-left position, a strong modern progressive position. And the risk is, I think there is a bigger cultural divide than we're prepared to accept today. And that cultural divide, you've got to bridge it very carefully. So you've got to bridge the economic divide, but you've got to bridge the cultural divide. 
And I think the risk for progressive politics is that it just it just kind of doesn't get the cultural part of this. Um, and, you know, at one level, you could say the fact that, I don't know, you guys probably got the more precise figures than me, but o- the age of, over 65, something like two-thirds of the population voted leave, mm. right? Was it something like yes. that? Yeah. And then under the age of 35, it would probably be two-thirds voted to remain. Now, at one level, you kind of say, well, that shows you this stark generational divide and how, you know, in a sense, wrong it is for the younger generation to be deprived of what they want for the future. But on the other hand, it should really give us pause that that divide is so stark and that is not explicable, in my view, economically. It's education. It's it, the, the correlator is education, not age. It's just that older people are much less likely to have been through the tertiary education system. So right. the, 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 there's the, the, the causation is actually uh, yeah, and they're probably education. much less likely to have experienced other Indeed. people in and, and and on education ever so quickly. You you said that you um you you might actually now think again or have maybe slightly changed your mind about um. Uh, electoral reform. What about faith schools? Because I grew up in Northern Ireland, I was subjected to a sectarian education. And so I just think if we're talking about culture war and othering and the rise of sort of, you know, they're, they're not in my tribe, do you, do you have a different <clears throat> view now about whether or not children should be separated through the school system? Or whether it can breed, help to breed, or create the conditions where mistrust can breed? I mean, again, I mean, to be honest about it, I'm skeptical that faith schools are a. Are a big problem provided they're within the overall curriculum and they're you know they're encouraged and indeed you know inspected to make sure that they 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 have an open-minded and tolerant approach I mean the problem if you get rid of faith schools is a lot of parents choose them because the kids get a sense of value and sense of ethos it's not necessarily linked to the they don't grow up religiously. They don't actually do the thing that they're meant to do. Yeah. No, exactly. But I mean, but in a sense, that makes the point. They don't grow up fanatical about their religion. But you know, the the faith school sector. I don't. I don't think it's the central problem. And we have um, one final sort of thing um, on the way that we do the campaign. Anywhere that you stand up for the status quo, you seem to lose. But if there is another referendum, that is ultimately what the proposition looks like. Do you have a sort of slogany solution to this rather difficult problem? No, I mean, I think it's a very good question. But here's what I think you, you, you've you got to do if we get back into the campaign uh, again. And by the way, I think this time the spirit of insurgency will much more evenly balanced. Because, you know, you've had, you will have had three years of a government trying to deliver Brexit. Not... Mm however long a government's been telling you it's right to stay in the EU. So I think the spirit of insurgency will not be owned by the Brexit people in the same way next time as the last time. I think, in my view, the strategy, you should just accept it's going to be like a general election campaign where there's two political parties. And it will be about those people who are prepared to change their mind. Um, now, it's partly about getting the vote out. Of course it is, and it always is. But you, I, I'm always a sceptic in thinking it's just about getting your supporters out. You've also got to persuade people who previously believe that it's right to be for Remain. In my view, the starting point of any campaign is to destroy the basis of their case. The truth is we do have control over our own laws. I mean, we can do what we like with the health service, with education. We could have tuition fees or not have tuition fees. We could have Jeremy Corbyn as Prime Minister, or we could have Jacob Rees-Mogg as Prime Minister. Let's assume that would be different. You know, so, <laughs> Pretty different. Um, you know, we can put taxes up, we can put them down. The first thing we should do is to destroy the basis of their case. 
and that's what I feel has never been done but, and that's why for example when Boris Johnson resigns as foreign secretary right he's resigning as foreign secretary it's a big moment right it's a, your big moment and you're resigning over an issue of principle the only example he can give of laws that Europe's foisting on us that he doesn't like is something to do with the size of truck windows mm. and its impact on female <laughs> cyclists in London which apparently turns out to be wrong anyway but you know, this is ridiculous <laughs> Uh, so we do have control over our own laws. You've got to take that. We are in control of our own destiny. And if there's a problem in Britain, we have to fix it. Right. So that is the first thing. The second thing is you've got to give people a sense of the way the world's changing. And it's not just about economics. Look, on the economics, I think it's a, a foolish thing for Britain to rip itself out of the, the, the single market it's been trading in. But, you know, the country will survive if we leave Europe economically. Politically, the world is changing so fast. By the middle of this century, you know, my grandchildren, my children are going to be growing up in a world dominated by China, by America, possibly by India. You know, those three giants are going to be dominating the world. You're then going to have some tall countries like Indonesia or the Philippines or Japan, right, which countries over 100 million, 150, 200 million population, but they're much smaller than the giants. And then you've got the medium sized that's us, Germany, France, Italy. Right? If you, as a country, tear yourself out of this political union that gives you weight collectively that you lack individually, you're doing yourself an enormous act of self-harm for the future. So it's not just about economics and how we sell into the market or not into the market. In today's world, you secure your identity best, you protect your sovereignty best by being part of a collective of nation states that are able together to do what they can't do alone. So this is, you know, this is the other thing you've got to give people a sense of, the way the world's changing and the way it's important if we want to be strong and prosperous and secure that we're part of that new world that's, uh, that's going on around us. So you need to destroy the basis of their case and you need to set out a much, much bigger vision. You, know, you need to you know, raise the eyes of the people to the, not just to the near horizon, but to the far horizon and say, come on, you, this is a, a fundamental moment for the country. And by the way, Britain's history has always been linked with Europe. How can we possibly end up in a situation where we think the tradition of Britain is to be separated from Europe? The tradition of Britain has been right in Europe from the very beginning. So these are also, I think, as you can tell, I think it's, it's a, you know, you need to make big arguments as well as small ones. And it needs to be done, uh, you know, with a, with a, a lot of passion and, and not just technocratic language. And finally, this, well, this Saturday there's another People's Vote March, which may be bigger than the last one. The last one was the biggest since 2003, and obviously some people said, well, okay, a million people marched in 2003, didn't make any difference. Which I've always... They've been sort of dubious about the fact that it didn't make any difference, even if it didn't completely reverse the policy. What difference did that march... How did that march affect you back in 2003? What can march... And what can this march do to Theresa May, like, to affect her? Well, I think, you know, any of these things, a big demonstration of opinion should have an impact on the decision-maker. Actually, it didn't have an impact on me at the time, but in the end, you still got to take the decision, and that's why we put it to Parliament, and you know, people sort of forget this now, but Parliament passed the decision by, by a big majority at the time. Um, I think, really, it's a, it's, a, it's a chance for people to come out and 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 at least give those in power, because this is a much more finely balanced issue, right? This is a very, very finely balanced debate. And I think what's important is for people to, who are 
are prepared to take us down this path to realize that all the downside is not simply on offending the Brexiteers. You know, there is a, another group of people who are equally passionate and in the end, by the way, are probably larger and are certainly going to be larger in the future. Hmm. So this is the importance of it. And I think where, I mean, let's be clear, this is not, this is a situation unlike any other. The government's not in control of the situation. They don't know what they're doing. I mean, frankly, this is a completely open thing where members of parliament ultimately, I mean, even ministers are making up their own mind. So everything's broken down. A march like this, I think, is impactful because it tells MPs who are prepared on this, I think, to pretty much follow their individual conscience. Um, it tells them, look, there is a big constituency of people who want to think again. Tony Blair, thanks for doing Romaniacs. Thank you. Romaniacs was presented by Dorian Linsky with Ian Dunn and Naomi Smith. Audio production was by me, Sophie Black, and the producer was Andrew Harrison. Romaniacs is a Podmasters production. Thank you.